Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. Today, my guest is Benjamin Teitelbaum, author of the book, War for Eternity, Inside Bannon's Far-Right Circle of Global Power Brokers published by Day Street Books in April 2020. Welcome, Benjamin. It is a pleasure to be with you, Dr. Mago. Yeah, it is uh, a pleasure uh, to have you on the program. I, there's, there's so many points of intersection uh, with this book. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very, very fascinated by the whole uh, uh, nationalism and Steve Ban- uh, Bannon and then you, the, the topics you, you delve into with traditionalism is something I'm very interested in as well. And then uh, ethnography, uh, a question of ethnography, because I'm also a trained anthropologist. So really, there's, there's <laughs> just tons. And, and then I was also, uh, you know, a, a hardcore, uh, you know, hardcore and uh, thrash metal fan in the 80s. <laughs> so <laughs> so, uh, so, I, so this. Yeah, so tons, tons, tons of of points of connection. But yeah, so um, I'm joining you from Trinidad and Tobago uh, right now. Uh, And where are you joining us from? I'm almost 9,000 feet above sea level in in the Rocky Mountains, just west of Boulder, Colorado. Right. Must be cold. It it is cold. It's warmer than it should be, though. Okay. All right. So we we should we should be getting a, a healthy snowstorm in the next couple of days. That's right. That's how it works. I lived in Toronto, not Colorado, but still pretty pretty Absolutely. bad with the winters. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we like to start off our interviews by uh, asking the authors to just give a little background to themselves, uh, particularly in relation to the subject of this book. So can you please do so for us? Yes. So I, I could call myself an anthropologist. Sometimes it's easier to do that, but I'm, my PhD is in ethnomusicology. Okay. And so officially I'm a scholar of the relationship between music and culture, music and society. Uh, In my case, the bulk of my research has focused on music and the radical right to the extent I'm an ethnomusicologist. Um, Mm. I also study traditional music of Scandinavia, but my first book was about the ways that music was transforming nationalist activism in Scandinavia. Okay. And, um, having got what years were you concentrating on the eighties? Then in this case, there's some historical work there, but really my moment, my moment of exposure was 2010 to okay. 2013, which was a, right. definitely a, a major watershed year for Sweden in particular. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've, in part because calling yourself a music scholar gets you a lot of access to people. It's, it's very, right. it's, a, it's a non-threatening 
academic discipline. It's, you know, for some people, it's kind of a pitiful academic discipline. Um, <laughs> and be, because that, that grants you a lot of access, I ended up meeting people, gaining insights to s- topics that, that didn't always have a lot to do with music. So as time has gone on, I've, I've considered myself less exclusively an ethnomusicologist and, and also a, a scholar, you could just say a plain anthropologist of, of political life and political culture. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, the the ethnography uh, angle, I think, is important uh, for us to discuss a little, because uh, I've seen you. Well, in your introduction, you know, you talk about um, how rare it is for anthropologists to study up, uh, and I think that's an important issue to to talk about, as well as I I see you have. Um, You've written a, a piece. I can't remember what journal it is about. If if I'm right, the phrase was an immoral ethnography. Uh, I, both of those issues, I am very very interested in, and uh, so I'd lo- love to hear what you have to say about it. Sure, sure. And I would I would I would caution listeners that the article you're referring to was written for specialist audiences. Yes. So the, the terminology is meant to provoke in very very particular ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so ethnography to me is is a, is a methodology. It's based on forming relationships with the people who you are studying, and that is to say, it's not uh, a research methodology of surveillance or necessarily infiltration, covert infiltration, or anything like that. It's about open and honest interaction, dialogue, discourse over long periods of time. Um, that's that's an understanding of ethnography that's emerged gradually, but it, it has been uh, valued uh, after ha- after a lot of criticism of old methods of surveilling and, and cataloging the lives of others. And and in, in my mind, that basic feature the the relationship that you form with the people you study that's what distinguishes it from other research methodologies. It doesn't necessarily make it better in any grand sense than. Than another research methodology, but those are the insights that ethnographers can offer that others cannot. Yeah, I, as a as a um, former uh, lecturer in anthropology myself, and, and and someone who has a degree, the term we used was mm. participant participant observation. Um, yes. is, is is that no longer in vogue now? Have, have I missed something? Oh, I th- or- it's in vogue. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's just some natural. That it, I think, I think that. To the extent it would not be in vogue, it is just because of its antiquity. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, yeah, you yeah. don't hear a lot of people saying that there's 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 something wrong with that. But but instead of just mere participant observation, there there are those who say that you know we really need to collaborate with the people who we're studying, and that can mean collaboration in the strictly political sense. Mm-hmm. That we would think of it can, it can also be less less formal collaboration to say that we need to work together to try and understand their lives, for example. Yeah. So, anyways, that that's uh, that that to me is the signature. That's where anthrop- uh, ethnography, which is not the same thing as anthropology, but that's where the ethnographic method is today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I have I have insisted that when I do the work that I do, when I study the people who I study, that I want to do ethnography as it is valued. Um, the archetypical relationship, I think, which makes an ethnography of relationships appealing to, to professors and scholars, especially those who want to use their research for political 
ends explicitly, is, is that the archetypical relationship for an ethnographer and the people who they're, they're studying has, has been a wealthy Western ethnographer studying the oppressed. Um, that is to say people with whom political solidarity and sometimes personal solidarity is kind of uncomplicated and not mm-hmm. and non-taxing. When I come along and and I say, you know what, I'm not just going to conduct like a journalistic interview with the people I study. I'm not going to just lurk around them and surveil them, but I'm going to do what other ethnographers do today, which is to form functioning relationships with them over time that are based on honesty. That that breaks with a lot of the implicit trends in ethnography and also leaves us in a place where we really can't say that ethnography is going to be a tool for good, which is what a lot of scholars have thought. They've thought that, oh, if we're forming relationships with the people we study, there's a natural, a natural positive and righteous valence to our activities. And so when I say that we need to be prepared to embrace ethnography as, as also a potentially immoral mm-hmm. practice, this is what I'm referring to. I'm saying yeah. essentially that it is as moral as the people involved. And you and if you limit ethnography in its best forms only to people who will who can be objects of political admiration for you, then we're we're deliberately denying ourselves insight into a large portion of humanity, making ourselves deliberately ignorant, deliberately making ourselves ignorant. Yeah, yeah. Those are um, important points. And I I also want to put out um, a perspective from my angle, too. I I, I, um, my studies were in um, development studies in the third world, and I I had combined it with anthropology. And, you know, so there, there's always these questions. I mean, I, I want to challenge you a bit in saying that it, it was unproblematic the way it happened in the past, but because there were real power dynamics there, and it was yes. powerful West. It was it was privileged Western people going to study tribes people first, mm-hmm. you know, in in a jungle or 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 a forest, usually hunters and gatherers. That was the the, the kind of fetishized um, subject of the anthropologist mm-hmm. at first. And then, you know, then later on getting to urban people in third world settings. Um, and and there, there was this, there was always this power dynamic. And I, I myself, I remember coming to Trinidad and being a Trinidadian. So, so this is another thing, mm-hmm. studying one's own culture or one's own ancestral culture, because I had, I, I was actually born abroad and, and lived abroad. And so when I, came down to do my field work i was you know i was kind of you know half of a foreigner half of an insider and um and when i told people i was an anthropologist they totally uh closed up you know like so what am I? Am I, am I a savage? Or are, are you looking at you know the, the, uh-huh. the whole the, the the whole reaction was different. If I said I was a sociologist, on the other hand, that was fine, right? Interesting. Um, you know, uh, they, everybody was fine with that, and and they'd be open and and speak and whatever. But if it's said I'm an anthropologist, then it's uh, so so those yes. power dynamics are very 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 uh, much there. So uh, and uh, and. Uh, very early, uh, crit- these are some, you know, very early critiques. And then Clifford, uh, James Clifford's con- uh, collection and writing ethnography was a big thing in the late 80s and 90s. But yes. studying up 
has also been a problem too, because then anthropologists they have easy access to tribes people that they could just you know kind of go in or or just to go into a favela somewhere and and speak yeah. to you know whoever, but um, but studying uh, you know a multinational corporation boardroom or the elite or the rich uh, is is another thing. So there was this yes. there was this bias in. Um, in anthropology at, at you know in in its even ideal phase a, a very real problem and and i do think you know your work is very interesting in that respect because you are studying up in that sense you're not studying down um you're, you're studying the, the the powerful to how um so do you have any reflections on that like for instance even in terms of methodology uh that might be interesting Oh sure, oh sure, and I mean, first, I'd, I'd I'd love to comment the one thing that I wrote in that in that article was that yes, we could talk about a change in anthropology whereby there's more, you know, there are more uh, people outside, you know, non-Westerners studying, you know, participating in the field. There are more women studying, uh, and I think that old relationship, that old ideal of the Western, you know savior wealthy western savior from the museum going to study the savages you know of course we could go on and on about all of the foolishness in that and also how it you use the word fetishized and that's mm -hmm. true how it how it also involved a fetishizing of the people uh that who were being studied and that that also extends to moral assessments um yeah. one thing i write in my in my article is that there's there's probably no one on earth who's moral enough for ethnography to be inherently moral <laughs> in in yeah. practice we, we're human beings for goodness sake yeah so but when we in my case when you know the diversions that i have taken have not only been on the moral plane studying people who I'm not going to gain any social capital with my ethnographer colleagues for forming relationships with and, mm -hmm. and being collaborative in any sense with, but more, more specifically in the most recent book that I wrote, uh, yes, I'm studying elites who are extremely difficult to access and have no reason, no incentive to entertain my, my requests for their time. Yeah. And that it's, it's very, it's very difficult because it becomes, it becomes more transactional mm -hmm. at the outset. Um, if they, if their time is worth money, uh, or if it's, or if it's, if it's not just worth money, if it's, if it's worth a lot of appreciable public political capital, mm -hmm. they view time with me as a potential investment to be evaluated, um, and accepted or not based on, based on the <laughs> anticipated yeah. returns to speak in, in kind of economic language mm -hmm. here and my you know my solution to that has been politeness honesty and and a doggedness just in in the case of steve bannon for example who he's he's not as inaccessible as people think he he will speak to people if you know under the right circumstances but in that instance i just had to make myself an immovable fixture of his life <laughs> Uh, in form of just showing up at his his hotels and his houses, um, and being polite, but not not giving any indication that I was going to be leaving soon, um, made myself in a nuisance, and that that was what started started the access. But that's that's much much different, as as you note, 
from from studying people who are in a situation of desperation let's say yeah 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 right so um <clears throat> let's i i guess to get into the contents of the book uh, what is it you are referring to in your title war for eternity and um and why is it important like all great titles uh it's not <laughs> um, <laughs> it so it could mean a couple of things and i intend for the reader throughout the course of the book to learn what it really really is about the figures who i'm studying view themselves as fighting on behalf of eternity um, but war on behalf of eternity would not be as sexy of a title they they view themselves as involved in a struggle between unending timeless values and social forms and progress uh, and the belief in progress and the belief that as time moves forward things are going to be or have the potential to be meaningfully better than they ever were in the past and um the alexander dugan the russian intellectual who i who i write about in the book he He's used phrases like this before. I quote it uh, in the book where he says, we need to not fight for the past that has passed. In other words, he wanted to describe himself as not being a nostalgic. We need instead to fight for the eternity that is the basis of traditional society. And that's, uh, that was really the genesis for the, for the title. Right. Well, let me ask, how did you become uh, interested in the subject to, to start to write the book? Um, was it uh, from uh, the idea of traditionalism itself and the kind of uh, uh, or, or, or was it because of Bannon or was it because of things that led you there through the kind of death metal uh, scene uh, the Nordic um, the, the Nordic scene? What, what was it that uh, a little bit of <laughs> yeah, a little bit of everything you just mentioned. Actually, mm-hmm. um, it, I knew about traditionalism, and I had become more broadly interested in ideological factions and variants within the within the broader radical right, um, right. based on my research in Sweden and and on music, among other things. Music was one of the lenses, or uh, you know, that was allowing us to see if not ideological differentiation, then at least social and stylistic differentiation among, among uh, people on the radical right. And when I heard that Steve Bannon was interested in traditionalism, that, that blew me away for, for a very specific reason. The traditionalists that, who I had known in Scandinavia and in Northern Europe, who I'd encountered in my field work, some of them, they could be very, very smart, some quite quite well read, in fact, but they were the furthest thing imaginable from political activists. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were the last. This is especially at a time when nationalist parties in Europe were experiencing new political opportunities that they almost never could have dreamed of. I mean, the, the atmosphere, especially the early early two thousand tens, was one of just wow there's you know cosmic forces are at play and our message is going through and nobody can stop us right now um and traditionalists were not a part of that they were not a part of that optimism they were they were weird dr mago yeah yeah, I, yeah. Mean, I mean they were they were biz- they were withdrawn antisocial 
obscure esoteric intellectuals. Exactly. It had a lot to do with, I mean, there's a lot of intersection with the occult, with paganism, Tons. Satanism, of course. Um, yes. Yeah. Overwhelmingly male, more so than the male dominated radical right in general. Mm-hmm. Young, you know, antisocial in some cases. Like one of the YouTube personalities, Sticks and Hammer, 666. Okay. He kind of crosses, um, yeah, he, he crosses the, jo- the genres, doesn't he? Yeah, if it's if it isn't that I'm not familiar with that particular user, but but yes, I think you get the the right the right okay. feeling. Yeah, yeah. So, involved in a lot of debates. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, we have that, and all of a sudden, this that body of that collection of ideas is in the White House. I mean, and having never, you know, I read the articles. I read, you know, the New York Times wrote a little bit about Bannon's interest in Julius Evola. Um, there were some other, other takes, Josh Green's book, uh, devil's bargain made some references to Bannon's interest, but no one knows what this stuff is in the, in the mainstream academic or journalistic core. It's not like traditionalism is taught in political science departments or anything like that. No one has has a clue about there's a slim chance that someone in religious studies might, but, Mm -hmm. but in generally, in in general, that this is off the map. So it was that anomaly, uh, seeing Steve Bannon just aware of these these authors was enough to make me curious. And I, when I first met him, I thought I was going to be, you know, maybe writing an article, an academic article about his access to Julius Evola, and it would be about kind of communication networks and channels and publishing and things like that. Um, but as as I continued speaking to him, and really our so, first meeting, if you oh, don't mind, yes, yes, please. Uh, so, did you just like write him a letter out of the, out of the blue, out of thin air, um, uh, or or did you have a contact and in? Or, that's interesting because in fact, yeah. I, pro- I do want to <laughs> interview him myself. Oh yeah, well it it was it was very difficult. No, I right. I had one contact to his press, one of his press agents, what would you call a publicist of sorts? Yeah. Um, and I had to work that contact for a year. I don't You're know right. how, many, how many emails I sent. I even, you know, there were even some false alarm trips to the airport where they said, Oh yeah, you want to meet us here? And then I get to the airport. I said, no, Steve went to another city. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one time I, I got a message again and the agent said, well, he's going to be in Manhattan these next couple days. And I just thought, okay, I'm popping on a plane. I'm flying to Manhattan. Right. And if he turns out, if he, you know, if he's not there, then okay. <laughs> then I'll hop on a plane <laughs> and come back home. All right. But, uh, when I got there, I started texting. I said, all right, I'm here. And they said, okay, well his, you know, his hotel is, you know, his loft is here. And, you know, the next text they got from me, I said, all right, I'm at the loft. I'll be here all day today and all day tomorrow. <laughs> and and that's that's how it happened and and it certainly didn't you know i made sure when you get access to someone i knew this from earlier in my in my research that if you get access you of course like like a journalist would do you do all of your homework you do everything you possibly can to make the most of that time and the, the good part of that is not just that you're efficient with your questions but if they're receptive to you they also you also make an impression of being serious so yeah i, I hope that i did that 
Right, right. So, so, so I mean, so that's like, so that was a determined pursuit on your, your behalf. So, yes. so you really wanted to speak to him about about uh, traditionalism. Is that correct? Yeah, it it was. It was at a time also in my kind of academic writing. You know, we we have we have our our various projects that we work on, and I was I had kind of wrapped up my last work and was very very much kind of desperate for a new direction to go in. And I, I didn't actually think that Steve Bannon was going to be it, but, but I, it was a time when I was being kind of reckless with pursuit of topics, you could say. And I'm glad, right. that, I'm glad that that was the case because I probably would have given up otherwise. Right. Right. You know, the how you describe um, your sort of amazement with Steve Bannon in the white house and how these ideas found it. It's very much a parallel. I think, uh, and for me, with George Bush and uh, the neocons and Leo Strauss, um, you yes. know, I, I just said George Bush was such an idiot, and uh, <laughs> and you know he just you know sounded so stupid. But and then I just discovered, and then the neocons they just seemed like stupid warmongers, right wing, whatever. Yeah. And then I discovered the whole sort of Leo Straussian. Uh, extremely sophisticated and and which does have a lot of overlap with traditionalism although yes. he's not a traditionalist no but, no, but lots right, yes. and lots of overlap that's that's fascinating the way these things come up uh come up in the republican side uh, very very interesting discourses but you know we've been talking about traditionalism and uh I, but we haven't explained it yet uh, yeah. Can you explain to our listeners what traditionalism is? Because many people think it's just uh, liking tradition, but it's not yeah. that at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, ex- exactly. Um, I wish it had a different name. I wish it had a very strange sounding name that nobody would ever mistake for something that they that they knew. Traditionalism is was initially a, a philosophical and a spiritual or religious school. It, it didn't have a lot to do with politics. And for a lot of traditionalists today, it still doesn't have a lot to do with politics. Um, but it is based on the belief that as time moves forward, for almost all but one exceptional moment in human history that recurs, that as time moves forward, our condition degrades. And, and it degrades in a number of ways in the details of how they see time as equating with degra- degradation is, is important. But one right off the bat is that they think as, that as time moves forward, we are typically moving further and further away from spiritual truth. Mm-hmm. Now, they believe that in the past, there was an actual Ur religion, the tradition, capital T, that, that was truthful, authentic, and accurate. Um, and that as time moved forward, what happened to that tradition was that its truths became lost. They became lost. It, you know, this is part of evi- the evidence for this is that writing comes into existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we don't have living, active oral memory and, and preservation of spiritual truths. So we have to start writing them down because we're forgetting them. Mm-hmm. Um, they also, they also believe that, uh, fragmentation took place. That's, that true one core religions split up in a number of directions and that it, its insights were preserved in a sort of piecemeal fashion in a select number of traditions, religious practices around the world. And if you want them to be specific about those practices, most often you will hear Hinduism. Um, you will hear Sufism mentioned from 
mm-hmm. from Islam, maybe Kabbalah, maybe esoteric Christianity. Um, but the value of all of the latter uh, examples, esoteric Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and so on, is that they preserved something that was considered to be older than the host religion itself. And uh, in other words, that let's say Sufism actually has incubated spiritual teachings that are older than Islam. Um, Because antiquity, age, is a sign that something is better, according to this worldview. It's a sign that uh, you you have a time capsule from a a better human condition, an earlier age when things had not degraded so much. Hinduism uh, is is evoked, especially because it, it, in so many aspects, has preserved uh, itself and has preserved a sort of pre-monotheistic Indo-European paganism in ways that other other traditions had not or had to be revived in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So all of, all of those uh, all of those religious teachings are are viewed as as certainly containing the sacred for the traditionalist, and a lot of traditionalists believe that you needed to pick one of them and devote your entire life to it for the chance of gaining the meager reward of its its few fragmented insights. But the bigger picture is that they are all true in some way. Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a simultaneous universalism to this account and a particularism, a belief that you need to be specific to one tradition, but, but we can also observe that there is a unifying insight across cultures, societies, and places. You know, I mean, uh, for a lot of people, uh, I think they would just be uh, totally confused and shocked as to how this has anything to do with Steve Bannon, who just seems like a white <laughs> racist nationalist. Uh, you know, it's kind of like people would say, how, how the hell does Leo Strauss have anything to do with George yes. Bush? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I think for a lot of people, they, they just uh, have no idea. And I, I think that the linchpin comes in with the nationalism there and, and what, about the peoplehood, about the, uh, the counter enlightenment. And uh, I mean, yes. um, and I, I think that the, the, there are a lot of uh, interesting th- angles that, that we could, take it from uh, and i'll just lay out some of them for you to comment on but like uh with leo strauss you have this the the very 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 important distinction between ancient and modern and uh and that the um and that the straussians prefer the ancient to the modern right Mm -hmm. i i I, the, the first time you know, I I I am very sympathetic to to that view, uh, but it, it mm-hmm. took me a, a while to to come around to it. I, I remember being in the UK, for example, when I was doing my PhD in the late nineties, and um, and you know, being in the European context is totally different. And in, in, and like you know, reading the TV guide, for example, and they tell you what <laughs> movies coming on television, and if the tele and and if it's like a remake of like a nineteen forties. So right. So even though the the 1990s remake, you know, has has um, more, you know, uh, realistic acting, uh, better cinematography, better special effects, all this stuff, they they prefer the 1940s version. Right? They they thought it was better, and it's like it's like 
I, I had to wrap my head around all, all this kind of stuff, like like people that preferred houses uh, not with um, modern plumbing and stuff like that, <laughs> where I stayed as, as a student, and and, it's like, and it, it took and uh, but I, I did come around to it, right? But but it, uh, but it took me a while. It really took me a while. So th- that is one thing. The other thing I think is the whole debate of postmodernism. Because I too had to, I, I grappled with, uh, you know, I, I was so attracted to postmodernism in the eighties and nineties, mm-hmm. with it, and 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 I grappled with with a lot of it because I eventually agreed with Camille Paglia that postmodernism was really uh, fraudulent and flippant. Right? It, it raised great questions, but but they were they were not serious. <laughs> Foucault and Derrida they they started uh-huh. and then they they dropped off, and. And their critique of modernity, uh, if I may use the word, is kind of half-assed. Uh, yes. And it's really yes. when you when you went to the traditionalist, that's when you really and, and when you started to read Nietzsche himself, you realize that they didn't read Nietzsche properly, right? And and so some of the things you even yeah. talk about, like the emergence of writing, that's like a Nietzschean thing about the pre-Socratic philosophers were were superior to the you know uh, yes Plato and and afterward, and then I'm a Hindu as well, but I was raised a Christian and I converted sort of back to Hinduism uh, and, and that whole um, you know so, so so the whole Hindu aspect and, and I'm, I'm getting very much more and more involved in in Indian uh, politics and life with, through other activities and, and so that's a whole other very interesting angle then you have people like uh, Alistair McIntyre, who I love, uh, he, that's kind of like a Straussian thing about the ancient and modern, and 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 the very very clear break. His after his book After Virtue, a classic in philosophy, is is just one of my favorites. And then um, and tied to all of this in the background is stuff like the occult, like Alistair Crowley, right? and which which takes you like into the music, the music part. Uh, you know, re- from whether it be thrash or or you go to heavy metal or even things like you know psychedelic rock and and all the stuff in the sixties, uh, you know, the magic and occult, all, all these things um, uh, point point to this and and it um, yes. and when when you take these angles to, I, hopefully, I think people can understand the connection to the politics more. So I, I'd like you to to um, elaborate on some of these and and to try to get listeners who may be confused. How does this relate to Steve Bannon? You know? Well, I mean, you gave a perfect introduction right there. That the there's already the germ of the idea in what we've what we've been talking about, and it is as simple as it is encompassing. Mm-hmm. Encompassing is the right word here, but. That that basic belief. I often ask my students in, the, in in classes. You know, hey students, do you think things are getting better? You know, and yeah. they give me the, they give me the blank stare, and they say, "Well, what do you mean?" I said, "You know, things in general are things getting better." And all of them eventually <laughs> tend to say, "Yeah, yeah, more or less." Do you think that you are living a better life than your great grandparents? Yeah, there there might be one you know one holdout in the corner of the room. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. sociologically aligned with traditionalism, but in, in <laughs> with yeah. the traditionalists, but but in general, in general, we we adopt that 
that stance. We are moderns. We are progressives. Mm -hmm. That belief that things we, through our energy and our ingenuity, that we can make a better society for ourselves than what has ever existed, that is a sort of underlying political position that does not appear to us as a political position because it is so commonsensical. It trans right. it has a left wing, a right wing variant, a liberal, a conservative variant. But uh, for traditionalists, they take the absolute opposite perspective, which is that things can never be better than than they actually were in the past. Yeah. And everything that you think is progress uh, is wrong. They even have a, a, a concept called inversion. Yeah. Um, which which is which has more kind of come to life in commentary on traditionalism, I have to say, but I, I, I certainly use it in the book. But the belief that, especially in the modern era where we're living today, basically any official status or any official institution that we see is probably underneath the surface, uh, uh, perpetuating the opposite of its of its stated mission. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I'm a professor. I'm probably teaching ignorance rather than truth and insight. Yeah, doctors are probably harming rather than uh, assisting the, in in strengthening the health of their patients. Kind of like an esoteric, exoteric. <laughs> exactly, sense. but ex- yeah. except you know, driving on the point that the two are are necessarily pure opposites. Yeah. So, so if you're looking to what we've just talked about today and what that could possibly have to do with Donald Trump and Steve Bannon, this is, this is where we see it. Of course, the details matter. What, what is it that was so great about the past? What is it that is getting worse? How should things be? How are things? Why are they bad? All those details matter. And for traditionalists, the details shift a bit as well. The, more, the most notable, the most notorious traditionalist on the right is Julius Avila. Um, you know, in whose tradition, in whose lineage, really, we see a lot of, of right-wing political activism. Um, and for him, part of what was great about the past was not just its spirituality, but its racial uh, separatism, um, a, a sort of caste hierarchy that that is going to be most familiar to familiar to most listeners who have some familiarity with Hinduism. Um, a belief that the global north was was a seat of enlightenment over the global south, uh, a belief that masculinism was was to be uh, preferred over feminism. All of the all of all of that detail and all of that content makes it especially easy to align with with the reactionary radical right. But we we shouldn't miss that basic principle that we already know, having not not even talked any more about traditionalism, having just talked about its understanding of time and of eschatology. We know that this is not a progressive left wing political uh, accessory by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination. Now, there are a couple of things that I, I want to uh, go off in that, but let, let's let's take the the simpler one first of uh, that this is not a left wing um, uh, point of view or worldview. However, however, there is a lot of overlap. You know, for example, uh, and and I'd like you to to comment a little bit about this more about a, something you wrote in the conclusion in, in the final chapter um, where. You're kind of summarizing the beliefs and the political programs of, of the uh, traditionalists. And you talk about uh, no empires, no domineering transnational entities plotting beyond the view and the control of average people. 
Instead, a world of nations or civilizations, of bounded enclaves, and that's what's important, each based on something that ought to align with its robust borders, its people. Um, so first of all, I, I, I want to note that a lot of left-wing ideology, uh, left-wing thought will uh, um, find, uh, you know, resonance with this in terms of economic nationalism and against globalism, against imperialism, against interventionism, against endless wars and, and all these things. Uh, so, and while I note that, I also want to ask okay. you, what's wrong with that vision? It's something that I think, for example, is... is, is not only legitimate but desirable. So mm -hmm. I, I'd like to hear your um, your your critique of that vision. Sure, there's a, there's a lot to say there, I, I, and I and I want to be careful not to mix the two questions together. Mm -hmm. um, I broadly identify with the left, even though I'm somewhat heretical and not always accepted as a leftist. I don't really care, <laughs> um, but I don't like and I don't want to reinforce the notion that that what is left is good. Right, because I've met too many leftists to know to know better. <laughs> so I, um, uh, okay. So your question is is you know the distinction with the left. It has to do with motivation, of course. Mm -hmm. I don't think if if you look at the contemporary left, yes, it may be anti-imperialist in some senses, um, in the military and economic sense. Um, it's it's broader. You know the the old and the new left. The old left being you know a sort of social democrat slash communist slash slash socialist mm -hmm. cause is going to be way too materialistic. Takes a disinterest, I think, in spiritual matters right. to the extent that it would put it at odds with traditionalism. It's um, the opiate of the masses. <laughs> it is the opiate of the masses, and and it is a false consciousness. Yeah. Um, you know, to be meddling and, and there's, there's a powerful, I think, left, left wing critique to make of traditionalism and of Steve Bannon, mm -hmm. that all of this talk of spirituality is really the dressings for, for confusing the discussion about economic politics. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then the new left, uh, with its, with its emphasis on emancipatory social campaigns, well, emancipation Genuine emancipation is, is a nonsensical concept, a non-starter for traditionalists, because it is premised on the idea that you will escape a past of enslavement into a future of freedom. All right. And typically, even though even though the new left doesn't always say this, but typically a lot of it's the the end game for for these initiatives is individualism. Yeah, you know, this was one of I think when Jordan Peterson was was being put on the spot in some debates, it was over this topic that that feminism, GLBT rights, anti racism. It in the end, it has a hyper individualism as its as its as its ideal. So, so all of that is this, to say, I mean the, the 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 kind of bird's eye view uh, analysis you made, Doctor Mago, is is certainly certainly correct there. You know, I think that there could be a sort of alliance built in anti-imperialism between the figures that we study and, and the traditionalists. But, but we would have to pay attention to all of those details that that would immediately be be resting under the surface. And the question about what what is what is bad about about that, 
I'm I'm somewhat agnostic. You know, I don't say a lot about what I think. Uh, right. Yeah. Book, mainly because mm-hmm. I, I don't I, I'm not sure that what I have to say is, is is that that interesting. I I am troubled by globalism and internationalism to the extent that it also entails a loss of sovereignty for people that we suddenly find ourselves beholden to to nebulous international entities that are also uh, completely free from democratic um, accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one thing we still theoretically have a con- have control over, at least, is our national government. Mm-hmm. And and certainly that form of nationalism I like and have and do not see being supplanted by by anything else. The phrase managerial liberalism is one that, in some instances, can can resonate with me, not in others. Uh, the the problem is is that a heavy handed all or nothing approach to this also risks destroying a lot of good things that come from international cooperation. Um, I mean, you could look at look at this moment we're living in right now for 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 proof of that. Certainly, interconnectedness and cosmopolitanism is is one of the features making the coronavirus uh, a threat and and allowing it to have have moved as quickly um, and as unstoppably throughout the world. On the other hand, the the medical response to it is is a product of interconnectedness and internationalism. Um, you know, so where, <laughs> what, where where do we turn in all this? These I, I see it as an ingredient, uh, nationalism and boundedness that I don't want extinguished, but I wouldn't want it to to overrun uh, the world either. There's another aspect I I want to bring up and. Um... And, and it goes into different directions, but uh, let, let me try to, to stick it in in w- one particular direction that I want to talk first about, mm-hmm. which is um, when, when you talk about the caste hierarchy and you, you talk about the slaves, I, I have an objection there that I'd, I'd like and, and a comment that I'd like you to, to address, mm-hmm. um, which is a, um, the misunderstanding of the... Uh, well, first of all, the demonization of the caste system is, is one thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the misunderstanding of the Shudras as slaves, um, because the sh- which is the, the fourth caste. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in, in fact, uh, Indian civilization and Hindu civilization is perhaps unique in that there was actually no slavery. There was no buying and selling of human beings. No market in human beings ever existed. Uh, all, but yes, there was a social order, as as with with every other society. But but the the the, the larger point um, outside of that particular debate um, is that and 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 just to, to uh, one final thing. There's this great person I recommend, uh, Rajiv Malhotra, who has been addressing um, these Western misunderstandings of Hinduism. And he just launched a book about uh, what he called Sanskrit untranslatables, things like caste or idols or gods, Mm -hmm. which when translated into English carry this enormous negative baggage, Mm -hmm. uh, which automatically prejudices one. Uh, and uh, because it doesn't understand the metaphysics behind um, the, the, behind the concepts of varna or devas, which are the the Sanskrit terms for for these words that have been anglicized, and therefore um, 
laden with all this Abrahamic baggage um, on on the very words itself, which which almost which just sort of tilts the the, the interpretive playing field, uh, you know, irrevocably for for many people. Uh, but but I I, I want to uh, step a little uh, wider than that to to say that as someone myself who you know I I've I've interviewed and have uh, have relationships in a certain sense with you know Dugan, uh, Georgiani, uh, Mark Sedgwick, and and other people uh, like E. Michael Jones, Sheikh Imran Hussein, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher McIntosh, and and you know and and I, I speak to all sorts of people, I, you know people like in the Nation of Islam and Black nationalists and and, and mm. liberals, and you know I mean I mean I was basically socialized into the whole liberal global institutional multilateral kind of thing and you know so i'm, I'm highly <laughs> versed in, in all of that and and um you know uh, uh, all these circles and i will tell you that um i i am much more comfortable in many ways speaking to white nationalists so-called white nationalists than i am to liberals i find <laughs> liberals are in fact more um orientalist um oh more um ethnocentric mm-hmm. and um and, and and have this this inherent east-west division in in their mentality and therefore supremacist because undoubtedly western rational enlightenment society is far better than than hindu than, than, than a hindu nationalist state of course it is right um <laughs> in a way that that you know these so-called white nationalists uh, do not uh, you know they they don't even accept that premise and 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 they uh you know and, and they don't see this division between east and west that uh, that liberals do as well and mm-hmm. and i think you know the, and then the the left and the liberals go around calling these people racist and and i will tell you in my own interaction they they are far less orientalist less uh, divisive and and less supremacist than than liberals. <laughs> what, what, I'd like you to comment on that. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, for, first, uh, your 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 points about the translation of terms, you know, gods, warriors, slaves, and whatnot are, are certainly well taken. Um, and I don't want to just wash my hands of the of the issue and say that that it's the terminology used by by the people I'm studying. So take it up with mm-hmm. them, of course. Yeah, um, but. Uh, I think what mattered for for my study was not so much whether or not the shudra were proper slaves in the Western understanding of the term, but but that their their metaphysics was one of materiality opposite, right? Op- opposite a, a priestly caste. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, and, and that is that is definitely there. Yeah, yeah. So to the, to the second point, it's inter- I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction. It's it's more personal and less um, less ideological than what what you were saying. But there can be part of me that feels more comfortable speaking to and spending time with the people who I study, yeah, <laughs> than, than with my my liberal colleagues and friends. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and and I said it. It's more personal. It's it's that they will never hold me to a purity test. Right. Um, it's like right. after they know after the fact, if they know a little bit about me, I'm, I'm a pretty boring American Democrat, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry yeah. to say I kind of supported Elizabeth Warren. That's, that's <laughs> where I am. I'm really, I'm really pretty mainstream. But when they, when they know that, if they accept that we're, we're different, 
then if there's ever any tiny place where we agree with one another, it's great. Yeah. And every and every place where we don't agree with each other, so what? You know, yeah, we, we assume not, that. Right? Whereas if I'm speaking um, to someone closer to me politically, it's there's always this assessment, especially based on the work that I do and the people who who I study and the fact that I don't devote myself to just trashing them um, completely, mainly because I don't think that's interesting or, or educational. Mm-hmm. there's always this, you know, well, what do you think of this? Oh yeah. Do you have the right opinion on this? Do you agree with me on this? And, and so that, that oxygen that you get by going to the margins of the political spectrum is something that I've certainly felt and, and appreciated just, just for myself, just a place to, to breathe. Um, and, and, and don't you think this vindicates Dugan's observation about liberalism being inherently imperialistic? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I mean, there's, there's truth to those, those things that, that he says in, in the sense that it, it can't really coexist with, with a non, a non-liberalism. And, Mm-mm. In response to him, I would I would say you know at the level of of state formation, um, you know of making a, a national bureaucracy uh, administrative apparatus. I yeah, <laughs> it, 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 I think there there are reasons why it can't why it can't tolerate a, yeah. a, an explicit mm-hmm. actual real anti liberalism. But in the realm of intellectual discourse and also just in social behavior, which matters more to me, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, mm-hmm. there, the the dogmatism of it becomes becomes very troubling. Right, uh, right. Un, unattractive is maybe the better word. Right. Well, that, that's an uh, that's an important point you make about this the social relationships being more important, and 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 I think that that's also a type of orientation that that aligns itself to to, to this view as well, because um, in the end, the ideology is 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 often um, you know kind of uh, just an, an exoteric expression of, uh, mm-hmm. of tendencies, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that is, that is an imperfect reflection of it and that it's really shown in social relationships. And this yes. gets us to your book itself yes. because your book, as you say, is it's, it's not really like an academic, uh, you know, there's not a lot of academic commentary it is very journalistic uh, a, a lot of it and, and i don't mean that in a in a bad way at all journalism is is great yeah. novels are great you know descriptions of people events uh in in a in a in a dense deep thoughtful way is great i th- those things are excellent and and i'm not i, I don't disparage it at all at all at all but yeah. uh, but but yeah, but you, you're not like, you know, refer, referencing, um, you know, all, all these thinkers in an academic way, which I, although you do have that, but you focus on the social relationships and it's very interesting. There's yeah. a story there. Um, so you're, it, it yeah, it, it's, it's not, we've been talking theoretically in a sense, but that your book is yeah. not that. It is really about your relationship with people like Steve Bannon, Razor Joy, Johnny, not so much Richard Spencer, although he comes in, but Dugan, you have this jellyfish, you have this John Morgan. So you have this cast of characters and, and, um, yeah. So, uh, can you, uh, explain a little bit more about that? Maybe tell us a little bit about some of these characters, some of the interesting interactions and surprising, um, you know, antagonisms and, and, and stuff that, that are there. This makes everything very human and interesting. Uh, and that's a, v- a very important part of your book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
by the time I got to the end of my period of research, really Steve Steve Bannon was one of the most normal characters <laughs> that, I, <laughs> that I came across by a by a long shot. Mm-hmm. So, again, something about the margins attracts attracts very colorful colorful people. Yeah, but. I was following multiple multiple stories broke out while I was while I was studying this book. One was that basically before my eyes, Steve Bannon was trying to network with uh, his equivalency, let's say, in in other countries. Um, it's he's not a perfect equivalency, but yeah, you have Dugan in Russia, and then you have this figure Olavo de Carvalho in in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dugan, who is a a public intellectual. In complicated and kind of unquantifiable ways, he he's influential in Russia. Although it, it's very, as I wrote in the book, it's very easy to overstate or understate his, yeah. his influence. It's hard to know exactly where, but but he's something. Yeah, so much we know. Um, Olavo de Carvalho is is a major influence. No one denies that he's a major influence on Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. Mm-hmm. He's more properly called his guru, and some people credit him as for having created bolsonaro's victory mm-hmm. and then of course we have uh we have bannon by the way uh, olavo does not does not have any official position in in right. bolsonaro's cabinet which makes the whole thing more more noteworthy actually yeah more more of a real guru relationship <laughs> more, of a, more of a real more of a proper traditional yeah like a traditionalist yep. yeah Exactly. And so we have them, we have Bannon attempting to coordinate Dugan and Olavo have had exchanges, but they don't agree. That story is going on. It's very dramatic for me. That, that is what is what really caught my attention and maybe want to write the book that I did is, is right. just be, because that was playing out right, right before me. Um, and meanwhile, as that's going on, I start to learn about this subterranean effort to lobby Steve Bannon when he was in the White House based on his status as a traditionalist. And it was coming from the traditionalist world, the more standard world that I knew of. Um, And that's where Jason Giorgiani comes in and also exits the story. But we have a very confusing world, uh, you know, and, and the story one person compared it to a Coen Brothers film <laughs> yeah. because because they don't succeed and, yeah. and they cause themselves a lot of harm in the process. But there's mm-hmm. a network of figures, lobbyists, activists, common criminals who were doing all of these things to try and catch Steve Bannon's attention to lobby him on the basis of traditionalism, hoping that he would in turn lobby Trump for a change in policy toward Iran. Yeah. So that's a very complicated story, and and I and I, I won't be able to do it do it justice here. But yeah. um, following that, following that story, which involves, I, if, if I may interject something, uh, just uh, for listeners who who might not understand, but Iran is uh, the the name Iran means land of the Aryans. So there's a little connection there. <laughs> so yes. yeah, and that that's definitely part of it. But yeah, go on with uh, uh, with the next character <laughs> well I, I you know so i was following i followed in the story basically how a major translator of traditionalist right-wing traditionalist works arctos publishers yeah. whose whose figures i've come to know over the years how they transformed how they came into being and how they eventually started producing literature that that certainly is saturating and circulating the ideas of all the rest of the figures in the story. 
but then eventually they become part of an instrument uh, to to lobby Steve Bannon, and this involves Arctos's fusion with Richard Spencer to make mm-hmm. the short-lived alt-right corporation, right? Um, which was designed on the initiative of Jason Drogiani, on the initiative of the this murky network mm-hmm. to lobby Steve Bannon. Right. Okay. Um, and to get to him, to make a lot of public noise, to hold events, it all comes, it all comes crashing down. You know, Giorgiani loses his job. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the alt-right movement is, is tarnished, not necessarily because of this, but it didn't help. And then, and then one figure, one of, one of the agents in that dark network, Michael Bagley ends up being picked up by the, by the FBI <clears throat> while I'm doing my work. So, mm-hmm trying to launder money from Mexican drug cartels to build a border wall. It, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's crazy, but it's very right. entertaining. I just couldn't believe it as I was following it all. Yeah. Too. Yeah. 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 And, um, so, so you, you, you have all these, these characters here, uh, uh, trying to, 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 um, you know, to to lobby, to the, they have their projects. So some are overlapping, some are contradictory, like the Iran question, yes. for example. Um, and and also during that time, another event uh, that happened that has become iconic, I suppose, in or or anti-iconic, in, you know, uh, was the Charlottesville um, yes. rally, Unite the Right. And so, so you you have a chapter on on that as well that. Uh, how do, how does that fit into to all of this? It it fits in in that initially Jason Giorgiani and some others were hoping that the term alt right, as opposed to let's say white nationalist or neo Nazi, that part of its political power. I think Steve Bannon felt this way too. He used the term early on in his career before before stopping to use it. Their hope was that alt-right would be kind of a new start for a a properly anti-liberal, anti-modernist critique of rightism in the country and and that it would gain a new hearing for itself based on not just the change in label, but that you would have a more intellectual cause. It wouldn't be populated by common white nationalists and thugs and neo-Nazis and things like that. And that it would be proper. Um, you know, a proper, they would have, it would be a think tank of sorts. Mm-hmm. And um, that was important for someone like Jason Drogiani, who didn't associate really with white nationalism, even though his his political views are, are certainly beyond the pale of the mainstream in the United mm-hmm. States. And in Charlottesville, that whole project came to a dramatic, fiery halt Right, where where what was labeled as an alt right event in the eyes of most of the country just descended into a very typical stereotypical display of violence and death and chaos and you know explicit chauvinism and hatred and things like that. So that I mean, it killed the alt right corporation. It arguably killed the the label alt right as a yeah. meaningful alternative. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and everybody kind of went fleeing in their separate directions. It also killed Steve Bannon. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, that was a, a a big turning point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, 
this is when you know his his accommodations and his advice to Trump that Trump be more more apologetic in his and more equivocating, more equivocal in his, in his references to to the whole conflict in Charlottesville. That made him an easy target when when critics were calling for Trump to do something and to change. That solution was to get get the wacko out of the White House, and that wacko was Steve Bannon. Right, right, exactly. Now you know, I, I wanted uh, you said something in passing there that I'd just like to expand on a, a little bit, which is about Reza Georgiani, um, Jason Reza Georgiani, mm-hmm. who, who's a, a, a Persian um, uh, sort of Renaissance. Um, person thinker uh, he's a very very intelligent uh, guy yes. and the one I, I i i like him i i don't agree with everything um mm-hmm. but uh, but i like him a, a lot though mm-hmm. uh, and um yeah and and you say he's he's very much outside of the mainstream discourse in the u.s very correct however and this is one thing i'd really like to emphasize to our american listeners and um and i suppose i think europeans might might be more understanding of this although he's very outside of mainstream discourse in the u.s he is not outside of mainstream discourse in many places in asia in in, in, yeah. in iran uh, even in a place like India, like like uh, Tilak right? and, and the the Vedic, uh, the the yes, Arctic, Arctic origins of of the Aryans in uh, in uh, yeah, and 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 the whole um, you know even where where the pole was and all that. I mean, up to just a couple of months ago, there was a whole uh, long article in the Indian Express, a very mainstream paper in yes. India. Um, you know, written by someone from one of, uh, I think he's either from the Ministry of Defense or one of the major think tanks. But but these are these are mainstream things outside of a sort of uh, American liberal discourse. And even within America, I, I was um, uh, I I was uh, you, when I was getting into a lot of this stuff, like nation, the Nation of Islam, for example, and Malcolm mm-hmm. X. I'm doing a series on the new uh, books network on Malcolm X and black nationalism for that. <laughs> but like a lot of, of their views are so outside of sort of yes. white liberal discussion, but it is very important in, uh, in black American life and therefore American life. Like some, you cannot understand Louis Farrakhan, for example, without understanding some of these very, 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 uh, uh, outside, if if you want to put it, uh, and I, I don't want to use the term marginal because in Black America it's not marginal. It is not marginal at all. Louis Farrakhan is a mainstream figure in Black America, you know. Yes. And 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 these things, I think it it goes it back to the kind of Orientalist um, liberalism, you know, uh-huh. and, uh, <laughs> that uh, that um, it it is very. I I find it you know very difficult. Uh, to speak to liberals about these things because they are they are so judgmental as as you say and and they they so stringently narrow their frame of of reference um, and and it's something and I'm not saying that people have to agree with all these things but but I do think that um, that now and, and it's coming down to this censorship issue as well that that's happening all throughout um, social media I I. I I yes. I would really 
like it if there weren't this censorship if we could <laughs> if we could discuss all these things even if we don't agree with it even if we think it sounds crazy it might sound crazy in this but many things that americans in mainstream discourse think is normal people in asia and india and wherever think is crazy as well you know we have to we and this gets to the anthropology of it all the ethnocentrism yes. i'd like to hear your comments on <laughs> Well, what you're saying is certainly making me ask myself, okay, do I call Jason Giorgiani outside of the mainstream because I somewhere in my mind perceive him as a as genuinely white American? Right. What I know what I know about his background notwithstanding. Yeah. Whereas Louis Farrakhan could never be part could never be American mainstream and does that have anything to do with who he is? Mm -hmm. Um I don't know, <laughs> but but there there could certainly be something to that. Yeah, um, right. I, I think those those distinctions those distinctions live. Uh, it, it could also be that that I've encountered Jason wanting to not not merely you know embodying a certain political identity, but wanting to participate in mainstream American politics, and that that makes me consider his his ideas in a different light. But I mean, aside, nonetheless, aside from what you're saying about how he would line up with people in different parts of the world, mm -hmm. uh, even within the United States, it might not be fair to call him mainstream right. or, or outside of the mainstream or, or yeah. to speak in those, speak in, speak in those general terms. So I dig it. Yeah. yeah. No, there, yeah. there, there could be that. And, and I, I, I share, I share, I think a lot of your, your sentiments here and that mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think it's a good thing. I don't like it socially, personally, intellectually, but I, I, I certainly don't think it's a good thing to be preserving consensus, peddling consensus from you know the position of scholars, which which tons of people do all the time, but but also taking taking the the blunt instrument of censorship in order to in order to preserve consensus is is a, a wretched, unappealing idea to me. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I, as in in your work too, you, um, I mean, you, you follow the, um, you know, the proper ethnographic uh, um, technique of of you know using the words nationalist and dissident right instead of racist, white supremacist, and you know the the pejorative terms given by others, and 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 that that's a, that's a very important first step towards mm -hmm. understanding, isn't it? Yes, yes, it's it's something. I mean, I I get a lot of heat from that um, because because I do that. I feel very strongly about it, and it's not it's not so much that I that I care about being neutral mm -hmm. or you know objective. Yeah, it's yeah. it's actually the, that the opposite tr troubles me so much is that you know it's it's and put it down in other terms, it's not that I like using the word dissident right or nationalist. Um, because there are cases where I think that isn't a euphemism, but it's, it's more that if I use the word white nationalist, fascist, neo-Nazi, that does, it does, it's at best meaningless for the reader. That's right. There's no one who's going to feel instructed or educated by those terms, but more likely, uh, it is going to inspire dullardry yes. and, and a hostility to curiosity. It's going to turn mm -hmm. off our, our educating and our learning faculties and one thing that i you know for example one of one of the one of the 
more damning reviews that my my last book got was in the Guardian, and it was uh, this this journalist Luke Harding, who you know who faulted me. He said, you know, clearly uh, these ideas are extremely dangerous, and the author never says that. Right. <laughs> At which point I start wondering to myself, okay, well, where did you learn about these ideas? Mm-hmm. You learn about them in my book. I know for a fact he didn't know about about all this, this story ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you determine that they were so dangerous from reading my book, from reading my words? And in other words, he didn't need my yes. editorializing to draw the conclusions that he did. Mm-hmm. So what is the purpose of the editorializing then? Why does he want me to label and force feed everything? It can't be because it actually matters to the intellectual project. Right. It is, it is either a cynical assessment of, of his perspective in that case, thinking that he has powers of perception that other people don't have. And if, and if, I, don't, if I don't do that editorializing and label things in incendiary ways, then the fools, the rest of us fools, will be duped by my writing. Yeah. I don't think he has powers of perception other people don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or this is just a game of tribalism. And we're just wanting to make sure that I'm on the right side and, and that no one picked up a book from written by a faux academic from the other side. All, all of this is to say, Dr. Mego, that I, I think that that game of labeling, I think the impact of labels is so overstated. I think mostly what they can do is damage just in terms of making us incurious, but also that there's even deeper, more pernicious patterns of, of inquisition going on. In this stuff, and and it's not good for me professionally. It'd be much easier if I wrote hit pieces, uh, but it's I will never be on that side. I will never ever yeah. be on that side. Yeah, and that that's interesting about uh, your comment in the the Guardian. And I I saw an inter uh, a review of your book in Foreign Affairs, and they they kind of had an, another uh, angle of critique, which is that. Um, that none of the people you interviewed are really important. It's just a bunch of cranks, and that this is marginal, right. and so therefore it's it's really not um, it's 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 really not uh, not that big a deal. So uh, it's it's that that's a very <laughs> you know um, a, yeah. another kind of uh, d- dismissive uh, um, attack. And uh, well, do, do you want to address that? Oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I actually liked. It was a short, short review. I, I yeah, just I, a short I, was, I was, I was more okay with that one. And I'm not, I'm not that invested in in the relevance or the influence of of the figures. I mean, yeah. my my American publishers made it pretty sensational in the subtitle and in some of the cover copy. But to me, this is a book. This is contemporary intellectual history. Yeah, um, it is. It is. No one could deny that at certain moments, Steve Bannon has had influence. At certain moments, Alexander Dugan has had influence, and that Olava de Carvalho does right now. You would be be foolish to to claim otherwise. Mm-hmm. But that's that wasn't that's not my motivation. This is this is that's a study of 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 that intellectual history. So so I I kind of just like you know whatever. <laughs> that's that's cool. I think it's fascinating. So yeah, I also think it, it just reflects also. His own, um, uh, you know, narrow-mindedness as as a liberal think tanker, basically, right? That, <laughs> that, 
right? So then when something like the Iranian revolution comes up, they'll say, wow, I never saw this coming. Where did this come from? You well, know, there's that there's, too, yes. Yeah, you know, there's, there's the, they don't understand how, how pervasive uh, these ideas are, not only in, in the West, um, on the dissident right side, which is coming more important, but you know, but also in in the uh, the you know Asia, Africa, Latin America, that, that these are not marginal at all, and and it, it shows the myopia again yes. of of the, yes. of the liberal think tankers, right? So, uh, abs, abs, absolutely, absolutely, and and I think in my case, one thing that the book shows. It, it's quite a coincidence or an odd, an anomaly that that we have these figures around the world at this broadly speaking the same historical moment that are all interested in traditionalism. And as I write at the end of the book, that may have less to do with traditionalism per se, and more to do with, as you said earlier, this radical, full force, blunt critique of modernism. And and I think it could be an expression of a widespread dissatisfaction with the status quo. And that bigger picture is absolutely worth paying attention to. And, and knowing that it's going to take so many different forms and appear in so many different contexts that, you know, that your average political beat reporter is, is not going to see it and might not be That's aware right. of everything, not be aware of how multifaceted, how, uh, how diverse the sociological milieu is that entertains if, it. If they can only think of Republican and Democrat, they're not going to understand any of this. Oh, good grief. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. absolutely. Well, I, I, I saw a, a little interview you did with Tom Hartman, and I think you know it suffer, the, the interview suffered from that. He was just trying to put everything uh, in, into sort of, you know, Bill Barr, you know, um, Bill Barr and uh, what, whatever oh, Barr whatever's and going Barr. on in, on the surface. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's difficult. Also, if you have work to do, if you have learning to do, it, it becomes difficult when people want to get to the payload as quickly as possible. And the yeah. payload is, is Bannon is evil and dangerous. And, right. and I, I mean, look, I happen to think that there, that there is some real danger from, from this stuff, but I, that's not the most, that's not the first thing to talk about. And it's not always productive to talk about it either. Yeah. Uh, or to treat it like it's like it's a very rich topic um, that 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 really there's much to be said about it. You have to be willing to have an adult conversation about this. Absolutely. Now, I mean, your your book focuses on on Bannon, um, and 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 that that's kind of the centerpiece that holds everything together in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But now that uh, so, I, I'd like to to hear your opinion now because I mean, you're, you're writing about a, a subject that's that is uh, constantly evolving and changing. Um, so where, where do you see Bannon going and, and traditionalism going and, and, um, and him and his movement? I mean, he's been you know, uh, arrested. And so we have, I think the court case is still coming up, I believe. Uh, and so, yeah, so we have all these, uh, you know, so it, it looks like it's kind of on the decline. Trump, you know, it's, uh, appears a way on, on his way out, but you know he has his challenges uh, to the process. But so, where, where do you see all this going now? It's really a question of of how traditionalists interpret the moment. If they see themselves, you know, if they see the changes that they were that they're envisioning and valorizing uh, continuing to, to take place. I don't. 
and I don't know the answer to, to that that question. I yeah. think I, I think that if to the extent that right wing populism is the instrument for traditionalism, mm-hmm. if that really is the ordering and the hierarchy there, um, I'm not sure that that right wing populism is going away. What yeah. we've seen in world politics is, I think it's it's exemplified with Joe Biden. It's exemplified with Macron that people can stop right wing populists, but they do so with placeholders. You yeah. know, cent- centrism, liberal centrism, is not an actual alternative. It's just a stopgap measure, uh, a, a pause button, and and it can be an effective one. But if if the opponents of right wing populism want want to actually do something, they'll have to come up with an alternative and that, mm-hmm. and one that speaks to concerns that are not going away. And those concerns are sovereignty. They could be, they could be nativism as well. It's not, not be mm-hmm. too charitable with that. Um, sovereignty, economic nationalism, all of those features, they're going to have to be addressed yeah. in, in some way. And I, I, I'd like to add two things there. And this is, this sure. comes from trying to understand sympathetically, even views you may not agree with, but you mm. know, also things like meaning in life, right? That yes. they find modern life meaningless. And and this is such a strong part of it. it it's what attracts me to, to mm-hmm. the thought, right? Um, yes. And and then also, um, also masculinity, the place of men, right? The, the, this is, this is also an important part of, of the attraction, right? Because the, these questions come up, and and if if we don't understand what you know, what what, what is the positive pull of this? What needs are they addressing? Then yeah. all the kind of um, attacks and name calling, and and it's it's not going to work. It's in fact going to push people away from where you'd like them to be. It will make it'll make them more desperate. Yeah, of, yeah. of, of course. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. Meaning, I, I, th- I think, I think that if, let's say, Alexander Dugan, to the extent he's correct in saying that liberalism offers two collectivities to us, either the global mass or the isolated individual, that that's that's not going to work. Yeah, we, that does not work for people, and it's going to leave us hungry. If, if if that is identity with your gender, if it's identity with your locality, that that I'm I'm less sure of the particularities of it, but. But this hyper hyper individualism and the global citizen sort of thing is 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 not going to cut it. So, so all of this is to say that I I think that we are going to continue seeing a pushback against some of the features that that are the actual objects of traditionalism's critique: mm-hmm. the mass homogenization, materialization. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to continue perpetuating itself. Whether it does so with stamped and approved right-wing populists is another another issue. I, I yeah. made a point at the end of the book to say that Steve Bannon was very inspired by the the presidential short presidential campaign of Miriam Williamson. That's right. The Democratic side. The reason it's not because she was for borders or anything, but she was willing to speak about the United States in spiritual terms, and she was willing to talk about our our kind of our national destiny outside of just being an, an economy and nothing else an economy filled with free acting purchasers and consumers and producers mm-hmm. and and that excited if if that were to replace biden and trump let's say i do not think that steve bannon would think that we had missed a beat 
exactly in the, in the bigger in the bigger change. So that's why it's a hard question to ask, even though I, I appreciate you ask it. How they're going to view their future and how they're going to view advance and success. It, it could take very very different turns. Yeah, because if you understand, as you say, uh, and that that's a very good point. I mean, if you understand what what it is that traditionalism is is reacting to, um, traditionalism then becomes not the only possible reaction to those things, right? So you can have yeah. a pushback against commodification from the left. In fact, that's where I discovered it first, right? It was uh-huh. Frankfurt School, right? I mean, a, yes. a lot of traditionalist stuff is really just like a, 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 an alternative <laughs> to the Frankfurt School, right? I mean, it's... Uh, in content uh, and a method, right? Yeah, yeah. you know, it, it it is it addresses the same things of alienation. It's like existentialism, you know. It it, mm-hmm. it addresses the same problems, but from a different angle. And if it's not traditionalism today, it might be postmodernism tomorrow. It might be Frankfurt, or it might be something else. It might be the Islamic Caliphate, right? I mean, it could be yes. so many. Um, other things, Hindu nationalism, you know, wh- whatever it is, and and if you don't understand what what the the, uh, the the core thing they're uh, they're reacting to, then you're going to be constantly surprised by these movements that ap- appear to pop out of nowhere. But in fact, there's a thread. I I, I strongly believe. I yes yes. It's one thing I wish that I'd written in the book is that I think we could view this at, at least from the perspective of traditionalists. Let's say, mm-hmm. or from the perspective of Bannon, the desired outcome is not that the political power moves left or right but i think in there in in his telling it would be that it moved up yeah up or yeah. down that at the moment we if you know we were talking about the hindu caste system really not opposing a proper slave and a proper priest or a god but but materialism and spirituality you could map our political spectrum onto that hierarchy see a left and a right but what what matters is the is instead the vertical axis yeah Absolutely. That's that's how I think. That's you know again that that can be Aryan inspiring. A, a critic could reasonably say that all of this talk of of spirituality and deeper meaning and things that this could just be the trappings of obscuring yeah. material material inequalities and that and that's true. But that's where the conversation needs to take place. Regardless, exactly. that's what we need to we need to consider. That's right. Then you get to the hardcore Marxist materialist, you know, yes. historical materialists and, and, and whatnot. And then you get to some nice discussions. <laughs> yes. But, I, but yes. I, I know your book is not a theoretical book. It's not really even a message book in that sense. Thank right? you. However, um, you know, is there something you'd like to leave your readers with? Uh, I, yeah. I know it's not didactic, right? But, but yeah. I don't know. Is, is there something you would like to leave them with? Pay attention to the details. Right. Um, do not. The one thing I would feel like a failure is if someone read the book and said, "Uh huh." So traditionalism is just fascism. <laughs> this is just the latest guys. That that's not that's not true. You're you're right to say it's been very hard to market a book without a thesis. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and without a political constituency who you are you are peddling consensus to that, you know, this really, this has no target audience who, you know, who just love it. And, but what, what I hope it does is, is it opens up the door to the fact that, that what you have just been saying that you cannot think in terms of left and right, Mm -hmm. you have to see particularity in the various ideas that are circling, circulating around. 
and that there's a, there's a broad will to to think in terms of radical alternatives to our to our status quo. That that's that that pre-existing pastime is now becoming politically compelling in new ways. All yeah. of all of those things, I I would be fine with. I would also be totally okay with a reader simply being lost in the aesthetics, the moods, the stories, and the ideas mm-hmm. without any particular course. Yeah, yeah, because it does capture uh, a, a very a particular moment in political time that that uh, I I wonder if it's going to ever come back again. So, so yeah, you did a great yeah. job of capturing uh, this this amazing. Uh, emergence of traditionalism uh, at a a point which, as I said, I'm not sure whether it's going to come back or not. Yeah, yeah, true, true. So, well, you know, I, I've kept you here long, uh, long enough, <laughs> and uh, but I, I know you know you're you know you've ju- the book's just been published. You're promoting it and whatnot. But uh, are you working on any other projects right now that you'd like our audience to know about? Uh, you know, is there a website where people can check out not only you know your current work but the work you've done in the past as well? Absolutely, ben- BenjaminTitlebaum.com is a place that you could you could turn to. I'm working right now. I'm very interested in melancholy and melancholia as a political pathology. Okay. And that's a long-term project. It's going to be less, less easily, you know, soaked up by mainstream. Uh, sorry, there's that word again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then, then my last one, but, but there's been so much talk about political nostalgia and, and I think I've been studying melancholy for a long time. I, Part of me thinks that there there are new insights to be gained by looking through that lens instead of simply nostalgia. These days, an increased attention for humanity, an increased interest in withdrawal from the large collectivity, and and in the 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 chaos of of the human mind. Um, I think we we can learn a lot from that. So that's what I'm working on. It's it's more theoretical and diffuse, but uh, I hope it's interesting as well. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it certainly is an interesting topic. But thanks so much for this interview. It's really been fascinating and enjoyable. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Likewise, Dr. Mago, it's a, a pleasure. Well, once again, the book is War for Eternity, Inside Bannon's Far-Right Circle of Global Power Brokers. And we've been speaking to the author, Benjamin Teitelbaum. And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. 